Hello and welcome to Season 2 of Comics Books, the podcast where your host Lucy Dancer, that's me, talks to my favourite comedians and comic writers about the books they love. My guest today is an actor, writer, producer and improviser most well known for her work with Mischief Comedy, playing Sandra in the BBC's The Goes Wrong and the stage shows The Play That Goes Wrong, Peter Pan Goes Wrong, The Comedy About a Bank Robbery and Grown Ups. She'll be returning to your screen this month in their Christmas special, The Nativity Episode of The Goes Wrong Show. Other work includes roles in Doctors and the BBC's And Then There Were None miniseries. And as a producer, she recently produced Piano Play at the Edinburgh Festival. It is Charlie Russell. Hello. Hello. Hi, Lucy. This is very exciting. Oh, yes, it is. I can see your face. How are you? (laughs) I'm all right, thank you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. So, how are you finding whatever we're in now? It's... um... A little bit difficult navigating how it's affected life and when there are big life shifts. Um, mm. It's quite difficult to navigate those in, in the way you normally would when you can't just go and stay somewhere else or go on a holiday. Yeah, um, holidays. That's, that's quite a challenge. <laughs> um, and it's so crazy that, oh, look, I don't want to get political, but the hospitality where you go in your bubble and it's quite... <laughs> distant and everyone's really really careful is apparently very very dangerous but a ton of people piling into Primark or John Lewis or whatever your shop of fancy is uh, is apparently fine but then at the same time I wouldn't I don't want anything to be shut down um, but at the same time want everyone to be safe it's a tough one people have got to do what they it is do. we we can't eat with my family because uh, obviously um, we've been going into the West End John's been working so we we can't promise we're we're clean. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever been able to promise that you're clean, Lucy? Never, never. Come always on. been deeply grubby. She's a dirty girl, listen. <laughs> She's a dirty girl. Well, that's such a strong opening this week, guys. <laughs> how how have you managed to work then throughout this period? Um, very little. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been I not at all. Her voice gets very high. I've been um, doing little bits and bobs. So this summer, actually, I managed to organise a workshop of my friend's play. So my friend Callum, who wrote Piano Play, um, Mm -hmm. has written a play called Fanny, uh, which is about Fanny Mendelssohn, who is the sister of Felix Mendelssohn, who wrote The Wedding March. And it's a a sort of reimagining of Fanny's life. And it's actually a farce. And so he's written it and Katie Ann McDonough is directing it. Rebecca Good is producing it. And I'm the creative associate, which means I'm helping and also <laughs> being in it. Um, and we managed to organise a workshop, a socially distant COVID safe workshop in August, uh, where we could work on script and then we got it up on its feet and recorded that, um, sort of sending that out to show people we knew business. Mm-hmm. Um, was also able to work for the Mousetrap Theatre Project this year, just before oh, cool. all the more restrictions came in. So six different schools, like mm-hmm. year groups, sort of age range between, I think it was something like five and eight or eight and 12, um, have written a play in their year group. Oh. So six different plays um, written by children that we then would perform um, with just sort of a hat on to help distinguish uh, the characters in a in a rehearsed reading format so no sets or anything but we were up on our feet with scripts in hand performing on the duchess stage that got filmed mm. and edited Aww. and sent out to each school 
Well, that's lovely. Have you managed to find much reading time since you've not oh, been working as much? Mate. I, <laughs> I'm, is the word voracious? Furious? Yeah. Many things. Yeah. <laughs> I'm them. a big reader. I'm a big reader mm. and I read, I read every night before I go to bed, but I tend to be a fiction whore. Like I just mm. only like made up stories. Mm-hmm. And so I've been doing that. I've been reading, I think I started reading Anna Karenina. Ooh. Which is long. <laughs> so <laughs> long. <of> an epic. <laughs> yes. Um, and the, I started reading that at Christmas last year. That was it. And it went on for months. And I, I've been trying to go through some classics. Like I read Rebecca. Mm. I read Frankenstein's. Oh, I love Frankenstein. Yeah. And then I also read mm. things like Book of Dust. Mm. But the big thing that was a change for lockdown was I was making an effort every day to try and read something God, I'm so, I'm so, so virtue signaling, but um, <laughs> trying to read something that was expanding my mind in a different way because I'm not good at reading nonfiction. Yes. I made that effort to do it in the daytime. So I was reading um, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race mm-hmm. or natives. So now I usually have two books on the go. For sure. Have you had anything that's been like a real escape during lockdown to read? Yeah, I read that second book of dust, mm-hmm. which a lot of people, I've, I've spoken to a few people and they didn't, you know, if they're big diehard fans, have not enjoyed that second one. But for me, it was just such a beautiful progression from the books. And I came to those, you know, the Northern Lights trilogy when I was 12 or 13. Mm. And now I'm reading these Book of Dust books where she's, she's younger than me, but she's in her 20s. She's an adult now. And mm. she's having adult experiences with Lyra. And I really enjoyed how her story has grown uh, alongside mine. And I had the same with Harry Potter. I was the, yes. s- by the time the last book came out, I was the same age as Harry, like, because there was a gap in the books. I mm. caught up with him. And there was something really special about being his age, uh, when, you know, when the books came out. And um, yeah, I just found, I would go, I mean, I could just get lost in that world completely. And the desire to have a demon is still so strong. Oh, yeah, I remember. I was completely absorbed by those when I was younger. Totally desperate for a demon. But I think the point being, isn't it, that you learn in in the other books that um, Will, you know, the the character from our world, does have a demon. We all do. It's just Mm. that for us in our world, it's inside us. But I'd like yeah, but that's not as magical as being like, oh, you know. here's my little ferret. I know <laughs> my special little ferret guy who's just my pal. That's what I want. But I've got to learn he's inside me, Lucy. <sighs> <It> seems <laughs> much all... more tough. <laughs> when would you say you started reading? I was read to. Mm. I was read to um, by my family every night before I went to bed. It was such a tradition, and different family members would read different books to me. Mm-hmm. So my mum really liked reading Winnie the Pooh. My mm-hmm. dad liked reading uh, the Mr. Men books. Um, my sisters would read various ones. Um, and some nights, so my sisters, I didn't strangely grow up with them um, in the same way that other people might grow up with their sisters because mine went to boarding school and they okay. were at boarding school by the time I was born. So I would only see them in the holidays. And when they were home, you know, I got to pick who read my stories every night. And um, I remember doing this. I would, rip, I would pick Katie, my, the middle sister, so the person closest in age to me, although she was eight years older than me. 
and still is funny enough um, <laughs> and apparently I would always pick her because I knew that I could convince her to read me like three five ten <laughs> stories. I, I could just be like and another one and another one because she was such a soft touch and having stories read to me was my favorite thing and I would follow along Mm. follow along follow along and so when I was at school at quite a young age the teachers sort of noted to my parents that I was reading in in, in quotation marks with expression so I would add expression when I was reading because I'd heard it done by my sisters and my parents but apparently sometimes the expression didn't match the meaning (laughs) (laughs) you know I would do something in a happy way when something was scary (laughs) But I would add this expression that I'd heard from my family, and um, and such I was an just so proud. Yeah, such an actress, <laughs> copycat. Um, I was always an imitator. That my family would always get me to do um, accents at the at the dinner table because I'd watch Neighbours, and then they'd, like, I always stand They'd be like, "Do it, do it," and I was always this imitator and and entertainer. But yeah, so books have always been a massive part of my life. you told me actually what was your first book that you read all by yourself well now listen I'm sure I read a sort of biff and chip go to the news agents or Mr men books but what I what I really remember reading on my own and it being a big deal was Peter Pan Mm. um the book and so because my dad had read it to me I think or he'd given that book to me there was a connection to my dad that I was really proud of. And also I'd remember, you know, I really remembered going on like holidays with my family to, you know, the Norfolk Broads or sort of Haven holidays in France. And and something big about that was that my family who were all much older than me would sit and read books for mm. all day. I mean, my family could just do that all day. And um, I used to feel a bit left out. So when I had a book that I could sit by the pool and read, I mm. felt like I belonged and I was like like one of them and I was just very proud of myself so I read um I remember reading Peter Pan and um, it is and to this day one of my favorite stories ever um just totally magical pirates and mermaids and fairies I just there's nothing else really that hits that mark I think and and this is also probably not a great advertisement for my mental health, but or my childhood. But um, <laughs> but I was obsessed with the idea that Peter Pan would come and get me the way he went and got Wendy. Uh, mm. But I wouldn't be so stupid as to come <laughs> home again. <laughs> I thought Wendy was a total idiot. I was like, why? Why would she leave Neverland? You literally spend the whole time playing imaginary games and fighting pirates and flying. And I think, you know, not to get too dark, but um, I think, you know, I've mentioned it before in a, in a different podcast with a different kind, with a different person, very different style, um, that, my, that my childhood was a little um, chaotic and mm. um, difficult at times. And so I do think that might have been part of it. <laughs> it's, just, it's okay. Peter's going to come and uh, I'm going to live a sort of life of adventure and imaginary games and what did I do became an actor Um, (laughs) (laughs) oh dear god I thought I was so complicated and intelligent and interesting and really I'm just a very simple open book 
You've literally just done what a what a literal book told you to do. Yeah. <laughs> and and you've literally played Wendy. I have. I of have. Course. It wasn't quite how I'd imagined I would do it. Um, you know, I thought <laughs> I would be at the RSC or something. But no, no, I'm Wendy in Peter Pan Goes Wrong. Um, mm-hmm. But I loved it. And doing that show was so magical, actually, because what it did was combine one of my favourite stories and... Mm being able to make people laugh and it being magical theatre show because as a child for me going to the theatre was the most exciting thing ever I just yes, loved same. it when the lights <laughs> come down I get mm. totally involved in a story um, completely forget about the rest of the world get really emotionally involved I was that kid that like would sort of slowly be just wandering closer and closer to the stage without realizing it just getting mm. in, physically involved and um so when we did Peter Pan Goes Wrong and we used to, there's this bit at the end where the narrator has been knocked out and everyone's injured and the character that has been suffering from stage fright throughout the whole thing hobbles over, his broken leg, hobbles over to the book and tries to begin finishing the play. Yeah, broken leg, class. <laughs> um, then what I would love is when a little child, you just hear this voice from the depths mm-hmm. of the audience going, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> I could cry. <laughs> I believe in you. <laughs> but you know what? I remember seeing the very first production of that back in the Pleasance. And it was that magic is is it felt like you'd spent a couple of hours sort of skewering the magic of the original novel. <laughs> just, <laughs> just everything goes wrong. And poor Peter's being really knocked out above the towers of London. Yeah. And then you brought the magic back at the end. You do have a sort of interest in in that playfulness of light and darkness in what you read, because I think you know your next choice was Jane Eyre. Mm. That's a sort of similar vibe, isn't it? Oh gosh, Jane Eyre. Yeah, it had such an effect on me when I started to read it. I couldn't believe because I'd heard about you know Jane Eyre and you've got Jane Austen novels and sort of oh, ye olde books. I know it's not super old, but I couldn't believe that it was not a modern book. Mm. It's got, it's stridently feminist in places, Mm -hmm. um, but massively flawed because at times it's really, really unsisterly and sort of victim blaming and Mm. um, there's clear evidence of gaslighting. But I, you know, for me, more than the Rochester Jane romantic storyline, it's Jane's personal journey. Yes. And you get the sort of slight, oh, the scary bit with the woman in the attic and the fire and all of that's quite dramatic. But you also get these really incredible moments of self-reflection from Jane where she she talks about getting, it's quite stoic, she talks about getting satisfaction from being the kind of person she can be proud of. And and for Jane, in Jane Eyre and in many of those, the, the Bronte books and, stuff there's a lot of connection to Christianity but I don't think you have to read into it in that way I think it's a sort of there's this brilliant bit where she talks about um however much you know she's in a lot of pain and she wants a thing I think she wants to be with Mr Rochester even though he's previously married and all that but she sort of says well no because it's important for me to be to live by my principles actually because that is it. It's um, principles and 
principles and all these things are not for the times when it's easy. Mm. They are there for when it's hard and you need to make a choice. And it's that message about sort of between confidence and bravery. Confidence means you're, you don't fear it. You don't fear anything and you're feeling yeah. great. And bravery is, oh gosh, I'm not feeling good. I'm not feeling brave. I'm not feeling strong. I'm not, I'm feeling afraid, but I'm going to do the right thing and or the brave thing the difficult thing and I'm going to do the right thing even if it's a bit painful for me Mm. when Mm. did you read it how old are you I was at I was in my 20s I was about 26 I think I was doing Mm -hmm. the comedy about a bank robbery actually Mm -hmm. and I just fell in love with it um totally totally obsessed and I had it on my kindle and I would underline the bits that really stood out to me and then I read it again in um 20 like 17 when we just got back from New York mm-hmm. and I was feeling a little bit lost and a bit um we just got back I spent a most incredible six months plus in New York and being on Broadway and we came back and we had a show to do I was very lucky but I didn't quite yet have anywhere to live um and we were working on that but I was feeling a bit lost. I was feeling a bit disconnected to myself mm. and I couldn't sleep one night and I just, it was on my Kindle. So I just started and that was it. I was off again. Couldn't put it down again. There is something about those books that are so familiar. You're not reading them to learn the story anymore. You're reading them for comfort. Mm. 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 There's not that many books though, I think that can do that for a person. If, I know in my experience, it's only a handful that I'll go back to again and again. That's it, going actually back to. Mm. Um, one of the books that I go back to is less well regarded. Uh, is this all uh, Bridget? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Look, all right. It, people don't get it, okay? They don't get Bridget Jones because they've watched the movies and the first movie is pretty good. Um, the second movie is all right and I've not watched the third one. And they think, oh, it's just it's just part of the problem with rom-coms and sort of bad feminism and 90s. It is quite 90s feminism. And Mm. um, and it's all part of the problem. But actually, I just don't agree. And maybe it's because I just love it so much that (laughs) I'll fight for it till the end. But I'm rereading it now. I'm reading it again. <laughs> to be like number. But that's a great book to reread because it's not. I mean, Jane Eyre. I feel like it will take you a while to reread each time. You know, it's a hefty tome. But I feel like uh, Bridget Jones. You can you can speed through if you feel like you need it. Yeah, it's taking me about a week. I mean, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's very easy read, and that is said in a complimentary way. Mm-hmm. You know what? Not everything needs to be challenging to be effective, and. I think it is actually quite forward looking. So mm-hmm. I, re- you know, I read a lot of books um, at the moment and I've read them before about feminism and about uh, finding yourself and sort of almost a self-help type books like philosophy books and that kind of thing. And they're great. They're brilliant. Uh, and they sort of tell you what to do how you need to stop thinking about your life being only beholden to your romantic partner you know I am only lovable because this Mm. person loves me or um I need a if we're we're talking about straight women I need a husband and a baby by the time I'm 35 and um that sort of nonsense and 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 
actually the, the thing that Bridget Jones does is because Bridget is just as much a victim of that patriarchal um, kind of society and um, the bad feminism, the sort of women can be on top, but only if we shut other women down or, yeah. all, you know, one of the lads, but I'll shave my legs kind of thing. And she is obsessed with men and having a boyfriend and being married and having a baby that rather than feeling like you're being told what to do in your crap, you get to read it and go, oh, Bridget's really rubbish. <laughs> and I can <laughs> see this and I can see the mistakes she's making. And so actually you can feel, oh gosh, I'm just as human and just as normal as everybody else. And it's nice not to constantly feel like you're just getting everything wrong all the time because you can read Bridget and go, oh, she's slightly messing it up and she's still really lovable. And she yeah. has these moments where she says, I've got to stop thinking that um, boyfriend is, and you know, the be all and end all. And then the next entry is how she's like, oh, Daniel, message me. And <laughs> I think Helen Fielding has written it brilliantly in that way that it, it you see that jump from must mm. stop worrying about weight to oh, only had nine hundred calories today, very good. And you just see this switch. Yeah. But all we all the time. do that still, I think. You know, I'm in my exactly. 30s and I constantly am like, I should accept myself in my own body. And then, you know, I'm checking the next day, you know, what do I look like? Do I look as good as this girl on Instagram? You know, I'm not trying to be that way, but it is so deeply embedded in us mm. that you can know what you're doing is wrong. You can know that you're dating the wrong person. You can know that you're making the wrong decisions. It doesn't necessarily mean you're feeling strong enough to stop making those decisions, does it? Exactly. And the, what I feel Bridget Jones does is sort of allows you to not feel as bloody rubbish about that, mm. about yourself. And it, it's a sort of welcoming hug into trying to improve yourself. Don't worry. You don't have to be perfect. You can get this wrong as much as everyone else, but mm. you're still trying. And, I, I, and it's also really funny and really silly. It's a bit, um, no, it definitely is, you know, there's some outdated um sort of that 90s homophobia of like we're embracing gay people but they are best friend material mm. and their stories yes, are yes, subservient. Yes. you know all of that um mm. it's about posh uh, white you're assuming rich people you know it's obviously not perfect but i think i get a lot from it uh, let's move on to something which i have not read and seems a little heavier than Bridget Jones, um, which is The Blind Assassin by Margaret oh. Atwood, which I haven't read, but just looking it up, obviously I'd heard of it because it was a Booker winner in 2000, but just uh, finding out the synopsis for this today, I was, ooh, I well, mm, yeah, don't, try not to read, because I went into that knowing nothing. Mm -hmm. um, so you do learn there's, about, there's a book within a book, mm -hmm. and then not there's bad. a book within that book. Very confusing. It's it's a babushka of books, and um, and it took me a, a babushka, and it, it took me a, a huge a while to work <laughs> that out. Firstly, and then it took me a while to work out all the twists and all the turns. So don't don't read too much. Just go for it. I read about something. I read something about it today. You know, it didn't necessarily get great reviews, which is so funny, isn't it? Because how I never read literary reviews because it seems to me that they're always so um, derogatory mm. about <laughs> popular books. Mm. And you just think if something's popular, 
chill out, man. And I, I found Blind Assassin totally engrossing. I got really sucked in. It's quite long. And, mm. But I love a long book for that feeling of being completely in a world and you really, really get to know it. It's a much slower mm. burn. And then at the end, the feeling is quite strong, that feeling when it ends. You're like, oh, goodness. Mm. Um, it sort of has a bit more of an impact. But also because there's a, for me, that there's a deep sisterly connection in there. Mm. And having two sisters by blood and another one, another stepsister, and I do have a stepbrother as well, of course. But it, there's something about sisters. I don't know, I can't, and I'm glad I'll never know what it's like not to have them. And I'm yeah. sorry for the people who don't. Yeah, I, I, I love reading really about sisters because there's something so recognisable in your relationship with your sister, whether it's a great relationship or a mm. terrible relationship. I think they're very unique. I mean, I, I have a sister, just one sister. I've never had a brother, so I don't know what that's like. But it, I, I do often think, oh, if I didn't have her, I don't know what I'd, <laughs> I don't know what I'd do because we have mm. such a shared experience of life. Mm. I was very nervous because when I was looking for the synopsis, I kept coming up, you know, with plot summaries and stuff. And I was Careful. like, no, I don't want to read it. It feels like it's one of those books where that is very integral to, to not knowing that information before you begin. Totally. And then you get that real satisfaction. I get it as well from reading. I do read crime novels quite a lot and I watch crime drama and mm, mysteries and thrillers. And what I love is that feeling. And it's so clever, the writing. You feel like you've picked up on something before they intended you to pick up on it. And of course, that's exactly <laughs> what they intended you to feel. <laughs> Such craftsmanship. Yeah, but then you do, you're like, hold on a minute, if I just noticed something, and then you keep reading, like I've noticed something else, and then it, it turns out to be completely opposite, or it's exactly what you mm. thought, and it's so satisfying. It is, I always say that I read a thriller whenever I feel like I want to read, but like nothing's pulling me in, nothing's holding me. I always turn to a thriller particularly mm. one with a solid twist mm. because it just, it's one of those things that it keeps you reading to the end in a way that perhaps, you know, a long book about someone's personal journey might be great for another time, but not when you're just, when you just need something to pull you in. And a page turner. I used to read mm. the, um, the Ian Rankin, you know, the Rebus novels I've, I've read. read oh yeah, mate. They're great. The Jackson Brody, um, who's Kate Atkinson writes Jackson yes. Brody novels. Uh, there's another one I've read and I just love those they're Scottish noir it's called where uh, it's sort of set in like Glasgow in the the, the underworld but with a sort of slightly uh, misanthropic cop mm. with an ex-wife and a drinking problem you know a classic mm. um, and I, they're such page turners and I love it And your final book is a real classic that has been on my list forever and I still haven't read it, um, but that's um, John Steinbeck's East of Eden. Yeah. Yeah, it was given to me as a gift um, and I read it in New York, I think, which probably adds slightly to the memory mm. of reading, you know, that book and the, the joy yeah, of it. where you read is book. important, isn't it? Really, really is, or where you are in your life when you read something. And... Um, I remember being quite intimidated by it. And particularly at the beginning, he sets up the Salinas Valley. Um, and I thought, oh my God, all it is is descriptions of um, the location. You know, it's very sort of, what is it, Thomas Hardy, where it spends pages and pages talking about like, the grass. But Steinbeck's writing is so incredible that you, 
it's so poetic that you can't help but keep reading even though he's talking about the grass and apparently it's sort of quite intentional and he did it for his children and it sets up he specifically wanted to set up the image of that valley that was really Mm. important to him and then the story is long and has and it, it sort of goes off on quite a few tangents and there's a couple of different families involved but it has one also it's doing a thing where it um is sort of retelling Cain and Abel okay from the bible but also a little bit Adam and Eve as well I didn't I sort of because again I didn't know anything about the book before I read it mm. it I didn't realise until I worked it out for myself and that was really satisfying. I didn't go into it knowing about it and I was like, oh, I think I've worked out that this is a bit like Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve. And I was so proud of myself <laughs> because whilst I'm a big reader, I don't think of myself as, um, as a very intelligent reader, you know, a, a really mm-hmm. highbrow reader at all. I mean, I read Bridget Jones and um, on thrillers, but I just, just this, the word Tim Shell comes up in the book. Mm-hmm. And it's a Hebrew word, um, and it refers to the choice given to people. So it's that you're not born good or born evil. The thing right. that God has given you is the choice, and it's right. up to you to choose to be a good person all the time, or as okay. much as you can. And mm. and that comes up in the book. And there's this really sort of there's this character that feels completely. Um, shackled by what he sort of perceives to be his destiny and the narrative he's been given he's the wild one the reckless one of two brothers he's the less angelic looking one he's a bit more gristly and he gets angry and so he has this idea that he's the the darker of the two brothers and then I don't know if he becomes aware of the story of Cain and Abel but he starts to connect to that idea and feels trapped by a sort of destiny or I'm destined to be the bad guy because mm. of all these things that have happened in my past and things I've done. Yeah. And there's just this bit at the end where, where you know, you get this relief where he, he really learns that he is not shackled by a predestined story. He can choose mm. to be who he wants to be. And I found it so, it made me feel quite, uh, quite a bit of relief because I think, again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, you have a, a slightly difficult childhood and I definitely have a narrative in my head that I'm maybe a bit broken or mm. a bit, um, you know, negative words, broken, messed up, that kind of thing, and therefore destined to kind of always live a sad and broken life. And yeah. And it's not true. Yes, sad things happen still and difficult things will still happen. But reading that and I thought I can let go of this narrative that I've built for myself that I am destined sort of not to be happy. And actually Mm. you have the power to to sort of forge your own future. Um, And I, I found that quite moving. And what are you reading at the moment? I am currently reading Bridget Jones' story. Um, <laughs> and I have just finished Treasure Island. Oh, what's that like? Oh, my God. So great. I um, It's not as... 
I thought it was going to be more Peter Panny. Uh-huh. Honest, and it's not, you know, it's, and it's quite scary. Gosh, Long John Silver is really, really scary. It's a really interesting story. And okay. it's really fun and it moves really quickly. And before that, I read Rebecca, which I found mm-hmm. really interesting. And actually applying that to, to Jane Eyre, I, I really noticed some similarities. Because there is this story of, you know, it's only okay to write a female protagonist book in those days mm-hmm. if there's a baddie woman in it. And, okay. Uh, you know, that baddie woman is always the first wife and we don't like her. And Ugh. she was crazy and evil and a total bitch. And actually, when you read it, you think, mm, I feel for that first wife. Almost like she's re- playing with that trope. Yeah, I really think that Daphne du Maurier, like people think, some people think it's a really sort of anti-feminist book and it really glorifies and justifies violence against women and girls. But I think, and again, maybe I'm giving... Daphne a bit too much credit but I think she's letting the reader work it out for themselves and Re- not Rebecca because Rebecca is the previous wife but the, the protagonist who is never named mm. is very much loves the Mr De Winter you know the Rochester kind of character and and she's very much always on his side but I'm left as the reader with a bit of a bitter taste in my mouth and I think oh that's nice the writer didn't tell me what was right and what was wrong, but I'm gleaning that actually, do we really want to completely blame this other woman? And now they're dead or mad. The Mm. man tells you the story of them. Yeah. And so you go, Oh, right. And and you get that nowadays. You meet a guy and he tells you about his ex. Oh, she was crazy. And I just Mm. always think, was she? (laughs) (laughs) Or did you fucking drive her? there <laughs> I, I always know. say that's like the one thing you don't want to hear on a first date the minute yeah. someone says she was crazy you go oh, oh. Mm, why do you think she was crazy was it you and I, <laughs> I think I think it's just really interesting and I, I like those kinds of books that that challenge rather than just I love I love pro-feminist books and mm. you know but the best ones actually challenge us to question our own our own bias and our own sort of instincts sometimes to blame the mm. other woman or yeah or whatever and I think you know I, I, listened, I read girl woman other and again that was a much more you know it was such a varied wide range of stories that gave you all the angles mm. and all the points of view well I'm sure not all of them but it felt like a really a, a real plethora of those points yeah of views. and um and I'm loving that kind of thing so I'd like to continue discussing this, but I could talk the, clock, the clock has said we may not. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so before we uh, tie it up, I would like you to recommend an independent bookshop. I would recommend Rye Books, and it's an independent bookshop in Peckham Rye. Um, and they do home delivery, and they've got a book subscription service. Their website's really good. They've got gift ideas for mm adventurers history buffs music lovers swimmers um i'm i really like getting my books from them lovely (laughs) this has been lovely oh thank you thanks for having me i feel really um felt quite honored and special to be asked you feel intellectual (laughs) well i feel like you've seen me as the Mm -hmm. nerd that i am i've enjoyed it what i was waiting for (laughs) i feel seen i feel seen Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Comics Books. 
Hopefully you've had a chuckle, learned something new, and most importantly, added some reads to your list. You can find full listings of all the books we talked about today in the show notes. If you enjoyed the podcast, it'd help us out massively if you could leave us a review on your listening platform. And finally, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at comicsbookspod.com.